the Bible gives us something of a drama. It sets out for us a story which is set in history, but it features a cast of colorful characters with protagonists and antagonists, with leading characters and twists and turns of plot and all of this on a stage called creation. And of course, there is a savior who takes center stage to conquer death and evil in the offer of his own blood. The incarnation and the life of Christ and his death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension are at the very center of the biblical storyline. And this means that Christ himself is at the very heart of all of world history. God is the author of this story and he has orchestrated this drama in history. And it's a drama we now participate in every day of our lives. This is a point made by one particular theologian, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Van Hooser currently serves as research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. His fields of expertise include Bible interpretation, systematic theology, and the study of postmodernism. Van Hooser is particularly drawn to the Bible's drama and how it resembles theater, and he explores ways that theology can be done in light of the contours of the biblical drama. This doctrinal approach is what he detailed in his 2005 book titled The Drama of Doctrine, a Canonical Linguistic Approach to Christian Doctrine. It's more of an academic presentation of a book forthcoming in about a year, which is more geared towards laymen and is written at a more popular level, and this book is titled Faith Speaking Understanding, Performing the Drama of Doctrine, which is due out on October 31st of 2014. I caught up with Dr. Van Hooser in his home office, and I put him on the line to talk about the drama of redemptive history, or what he calls theodrama. And I began by asking him how he introduces the theme of performing the drama of doctrine. That's a great question. And I start at different places depending on the audience. But if we're starting at the very beginning, I think we have to ask the question, what is Christianity? And my concern is with being biblical uh, rather than a cultural Christianity. So I'm not simply interested in perpetuating what people take to be business as usual. Um, So that makes me want to raise the question, first of all, what's the Bible? What's Christianity all about? What's the Bible? And this is how I enter into talking about the theodrama, because uh, the Bible, I don't think, is a set of principles. It certainly doesn't read like a systematic theology, if you read it from cover to cover. It's not simply a worldview the way philosophers talk about it, and it's certainly not uh, a moral code only. Uh, People assume that Christianity means do this, don't do that. But, and it may be all these things in part, but in the first instance, that's not what I would say the Bible is. Um, the Bible, I think, is explaining Christianity by telling us a long story. It's about God taking an initiative, uh, rescuing the world from what has happened to it, this entropy, this captivity to death, this sequence of destruction. And I see the Bible then as a transcript of the interaction between God and the people of God throughout centuries of history. But the focus of the Bible is what God has done in history, God doing. And that's what theodrama is, theo for God. And drama comes from the Greek verb drao, which means do, I do. So theodrama is what God is doing, and that's at the heart of Scripture. I also think the Bible is a little bit like a dramatic script, because it's the story in which the Church and Christians find themselves caught up. In other words, 
we aren't simply reading about somebody else's story. We're reading about the story in which we're caught up, and we're caught up as actors. There's things for us to say, things for us to do. We're in the thick of it. So at the heart of the Bible, there is a gripping story about God and human beings. I, I think it's a love story of cosmic proportions. Not, not boy meets girl, but God meets world, loses world, gets world back. And, and that, that's how I would begin to talk about what theodrama is. It's about this love story of God for the world. And uh, that just brings us to the threshold of gospel, but that at least gives us a sense of how I, how I begin talking about theodrama as such. So it seems you really do have a heart for Christians not only to see and understand the cosmic storyline that we see in the Bible and to see Jesus at the center of that storyline, but you really want Christians to consciously live within that storyline itself. Right. Um, that is exactly, because at the heart of the Bible, um, there is this you know, story of what God has done, but, but the gospel is the good news. The good news about what? It's about... It's about the, the good news about what God has done for the world. And if we ask what that is, there, there are many ways of, of talking about it, and Scripture does so in many ways. But we, we could say that it's about the victory God has won. You know, Paul says we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his Son, as Colossians 1. And that means their, their war has been fought. I mean, something dramatic has happened, and the good news is the announcement of victory. Uh, something has happened that changes everything. And, uh, of course, that's what we get in the New Testament. Uh, the Gospels, four different versions of this story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the Gospel... Uh, is the whole story of Christ. I think it focuses on his death, but uh, the cross is a huge part of the climax. But I would want to say the climax involves more than the cross. Um, I think it, it, it involves all the events of cross, resurrection, ascension, the sending of the Spirit, and even the entering of Christ into the heavenly tabernacle, because that's where he's enthroned as what Hebrews calls a, an eternal priest-king, um, a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And that's when we know the victory's really, you know, complete. And so the Gospels is this amazing drama, and it really is dramatic because uh, not only did we have the problem in the Old Testament of human beings rebelling, but even in the gospel itself, we, we have the story of one who has humbled himself, taking the form of a creature, even though he was the one through whom all things were made. He became obedient to the point of dying on the cross, and then he somehow got exalted, and his name is above every name, and now he is enthroned as a high priest in heaven. How did that happen? And that's the drama, is the story of how the sun got from here to there and back again. So Christ is at the center, and all lines of this theodrama then con converge in him. He holds it all together. Exactly. And I think, I think the theodrama idea helps us to keep the center on Christ. Uh, it, because if we saw Christianity as a philosophy, as a morality, 
Uh, it wouldn't. I don't think Christ would be at the center of it. But in the drama model, Christ is at the very center, and we have hints of his coming from the very start. Um, well, the other thing I want to say about how Christ is at the center is that in the beginning of the story, we see God uh, making promises to human beings, um, to Adam in the garden, right? We have a, a pre-gospel announcement that the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of Adam. We don't know how, but there's something to hope, even in Genesis 3. And then we have more explicit promise that God makes to Abraham later in Genesis. And a promise, let's just think about that, a promise is a commitment to act on someone's behalf in the future. And that's what generates the dramatic tension. Is God going to act? When is God going to act? How is God going to act to fulfill these promises? So I think the fact that we have so many promises from God in Scripture... Uh, sets us up to expect the fulfillment, which is ultimately in Christ, but it also reminds us we're in the realm of action, because a, a promise promises action in the future. Yes, that that's a helpful perspective. Um, let, let's rewind to the beginning for a moment and talk about creation. Jonathan Edwards presses into the question, why did God create everything? And his answer is that God's triune effulgence, you know, his fullness spills out, which explains creation out of the fullness of God, and thus creation, this world, you know, provides for us the backdrop for the drama of Christ and the church. So how do you articulate the role and the purpose of creation in your own words? What function does creation play in the theodrama? I like Edwards very much. I I don't want to give the impression that God's being overflows by accident, as it were, you know, I think Creation is more than milk that has boiled over the pot. Um, But uh, I guess I would answer the famous philosopher's question, why is there something rather than nothing, by saying that God spoke. He said, let there be light. And it all begins with God taking the initiative. So God has prepared the stage. And it's important for us to know that because the world, the universe, is here for a purpose. It, It is the staging area for this theodrama, this um, amazing triune communication of God. And uh, Edwards does himself say that God created the world in order to communicate himself. And I, I think that's, that's entirely right. I, I guess I would just want to underline that communication is much more than transmitting information. It, it's about uh, sharing ultimately sharing oneself. I mean, the word communication, you have to do with making common. So the amazing thing about creation is, though God was under no compulsion to do this, he decided to create uh, a world that was not himself, but with which he would share his own life, make common the light and life and love that makes up the Trinity. Uh, with those who are not the Trinity. So uh, I agree with Edwards. God created the world as a stage in order to communicate himself. And that's why, again, I like this drama model. Drama is all about communicative activity. It's about people doing things, saying things, that share something of who they are with others. You can't have a drama 
unless you're acting in front of someone. And so it's really the creation, I suppose, that starts the drama off because it also is a, a communicative act from God. And just one last, one last thing. Even in the uh, act of creation, though it isn't necessarily a promise, it's not an explicit promise, but, but if Edwards is right, and if uh, creation is a kind of communication, I think it's worth remembering that the end of communication, the purpose, where it's all heading, is communion, which is the successful sharing with someone else. So even in creating, God is making a, an initiative towards communion. Uh, obviously, we know that that creation purpose got stifled and uh, by Adam and the fall, but, but that's what Christ ultimately makes possible when he enters the stage, he is able to bring about communion, and uh, we can think in, especially of his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he is praying uh, to God that for his followers that they may be one as we are one. And uh, interestingly, I think there is a connection between that communion, it's another way of saying atonement, at one meant. So I'm not saying there's any necessity for atonement, but, but even in the very creation, uh, there's a gracious initiative on God's part. But essentially, I would say creation is the stage that uh, gives us the space and time to interact with God. Uh, and everything that is bears some token of God's perfections. Um, you know, it, it, we aren't to value creation in and of itself, but it, it tells us something. It points us back to God as author and source and communicator. So, so when we're dealing with the world, if we have the eyes to see, uh, we're, we're dealing indirectly with the author of all things. Yeah, that's right. And you quote a Shakespeare line in, in your works. Uh, the Shakespeare line goes like this, the play is the thing, or the play's the thing. Explain why this line from Shakespeare stands out to you. I like to quote lots of Shakespeare, but, but this one is particularly good because the play's the thing, at least the way I'm reading it, he, he's saying that, that action is what it's all about. Um, you know, and it, this is, the gospel is, as I've said, the report of an action. It's not a principle of the thing. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is, is, is action. It's something done in history. So the plays, the thing, that's the core of Christianity. And what's exciting about it is that the play goes on, and we, as members of the church and disciples, have been given roles in this play. That is an incredible dignity, a dignity of being a player. You have spent... Uh many years studying postmodernism and its influence on the church and theology. How does theodrama interact with postmodernism and postmodernist thought? Ah, good question. So, I think the postmoderns are obviously upset with modernity for a few reasons. Um, I'm not sure I would consider myself either postmodern or modern, but I do think that they've identified some weaknesses in modernity, um, an over-reliance on reason, an over-reliance on individuals uh, would be two. And I think the theodrama does address this. Um, I, I suppose for postmoderns, I would, I would want to talk about a metadrama. <laughs> this is the drama of dramas, that reality is what is in Jesus Christ. 
that's that's the story that is that tells the story of the world. So I think they 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 like that the emphasis on story. But I would I would want to call it a meta drama, and they might resist that notion. Um, two other things though, that come to mind in speaking about drama, um, we're not simply talking about ideas. Uh, to be a disciple is not simply to be one who has correct thoughts. We we need to make sure that discipleship involves the heart as well as the mind. And yes, Paul encourages us to have the mind of Christ, but I don't think he simply means the intellect. Uh, the context in Philippians of that claim have them you know have the mind of Christ involves the attitudes such as humility that Christ displayed. And in other words, being a Christian involves living out the mind of Christ. It isn't just a set of ideas. And I think the postmodern might resonate with that because they are after more than simply knowledge. The, the theodrama involves imagination and desire, the aesthetics, and not simply questions of epistemology. And then I guess the final point would be Postmoderns um, often call attention to the importance of community. In fact, some would say community is one of the striking characteristics of the postmodern turn instead of individualism. And I would say that um, in the dramatic model, the church is very important for various reasons. Uh, it's one of the things God is trying to bring about through the work of Christ. He's trying to create a new humanity that the church reflects. And it takes a company of players to witness to the gospel. You can't forgive others, you know, by yourself as an autonomous individual. In other words, we have to exhibit the truth of the gospel in community with a company of players. And it's not simply about right ideas, but but those are important too. There is truth to be maintained. But I think the dramatic model, uh, I think, might appeal to postmoderns because it's not simply about stating the truth, it's about suffering the truth, demonstrating the truth in love, in community. So a lot of the things they find missing in uh, modernity with its emphasis on ideas and systems of knowledge I think um, the theodrama compensates for. I want to build on this point that theology is is not merely about subscribing to the right orthodox propositional statements. And, and in your book, The Drama of Doctrine, you wrote this, quote, Scripture governs theology not by providing the field from which we harvest abstract universals, but by embodying truths of transcultural significance in particular contexts. What we have in the canon is not a set of detachable, e.g. abstract, universals, but concrete universals. Universals embedded in particular situations, in particular space-time, words, and actions, end quote. So when we read the Bible, and so much of the Bible is narrative and situational, how does this makeup of Scripture challenge and shape the way that we do theology today? Uh, good question. So, um, just to repeat, since I, that was a long sentence I wrote, um, what we're saying is Scripture doesn't simply give us universals or principles or maxims, but concrete examples. Yeah, I, what, I, what I guess I would say here is that we do have dramatic scenes 
in Scripture. They're particular. Uh, but from those particular scenes, I think we can derive a better grasp of Christian wisdom. And I think this is important, especially when we think about missions and contextual theology and how to be biblical in other cultures than our own. I've been influenced here by Andrew Walls, one of my colleagues at the University of Edinburgh, and his work on the study, the history of mission. And this is how I, I see it. Every time, he says, every time the gospel enters a new culture, and every time the church has to contextualize, he says, the understanding of the whole church increases. And in a sense, this is what I see in the canon. Um, every, every thing that, um, the people of God have to do that is right in new context adds to our stock of, of wisdom. And, I mentioned wisdom here because that's about uh, knowing how to live to the glory of God, knowing how to live in a way that uh, fits in with the created order and the new created order, knowing how to do that in particular situations. And history moves on. The church is always in new situations. So we can't simply repeat uh, the past, but we're to learn from these biblical case studies, as it were, and we're to translate, transpose the wisdom from one context into another. Um, it's easier said than done, but the point is we're not simply trying to put a system together. We're trying to form wise people. And that's how you learn wisdom, is by an apprenticeship. And as a theologian, I see myself as an apprentice to canonical wisdom. Uh, there'll be, there are some principles that... I think are pretty abstract, but but in order to have purchase on the real world, we need to see how these abstract principles get lived out. And that's what we have in much of the occasional literature in the New Testament, and as you say, in the histories and narratives of the Old. So I wonder then, what, what role does systematic theology then play in the interaction with theodrama? How does theodrama relate to the discipline of systematic theology? Well, uh, I am a systematic theologian, and I'm suggesting that systematic theology itself uh, make use of certain ideas drawn from the realm of theater and drama, just as other systematic theologians say we should make use of certain ideas drawn from philosophy. So I don't see myself as doing something other than systematic theology. I see systematic theology uh, as... Uh, informed by this new model. This is a new way, as it were, of doing systematic theology. I, I'm still interested in systems, which by it, you know, loosely that means how one doctrine is related to other doctrines, how everything coheres. But, but I guess my question would be, why can't the coherence be dramatic rather than, you know, ideological or, or conceptual even? Yeah, why can't it be dramatic rather than conceptual? Very interesting. And um, there are so many things I want to ask you about, but our time is drawing to a close. Let me end with one more question. This is on the role of the imagination. Um, at the GG National Conference this fall, you'll be there, and uh, it's a conference devoted to the life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. You'll be delivering a message titled, 
In Bright Shadow, C.S. Lewis on the Imagination for Theology and Discipleship. And I'm really looking forward to what you have to say. But the imagination, of course, plays a very important role in theology and how the church sees herself performing on the cosmic stage. So explain how. Um, What's the importance of the imagination in the life of the church? Well, um, maybe we can back up and just ask, you know, why is the church here? (laughs) What are we supposed to be doing? And, uh, you know, we are an elect people as Israel was elect, and we have a vocation, as Israel had a vocation, and I think part of a vocation is to um, image God, live up to the image of God in in which we've been created, but also testifying to the gospel, and uh, we do this, as I was saying earlier, by exhibiting a kind of community life that, that really demonstrates this reality. We, we have new life in Christ. We are living out what is in Christ. So we're exhibiting the gospel. Now, we, don't, we didn't see it. We didn't touch Jesus with our hands or hear him with our own ears or see him with our own eyes. Uh, we have testimony, much of it eyewitness testimony, but we weren't there. So to some extent, there's a, a distance And we certainly don't see with our eyes or hear with our ears today, uh, you know, God renewing all things. I mean, it's hard to see things with, for example, scientific instruments. We don't see God at work in that way. That doesn't mean God isn't at work, but so the question then is, well, how do we perceive God? And I think one of the ways we perceive God is we, we, in a sense, read our experience, live our experience through these biblical stories and testimonies. And that means we, we have to imaginatively view our world, as it were, through these biblical lenses. I mean, you could just, I suppose, call it faith, but, but faith is this believing without seeing, and that's not unconnected to the imagination. So I would want to say that, first of all, that, um, you know, that in order for the church to participate in this drama, uh, we have to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, as it were. We, we have to be able to taste and see, and I think it's through the imagination, that we really are part of this amazing thing God is doing in Christ through the Spirit. And because we can't see it with our senses, we have to grasp it in another way. Um, I, do, I do think it helps to, to you know, be someone who can follow a story, and imaginations help us to follow stories. We're not at the end yet, we're in the middle, but we have to hope for that ending. And the other, I guess the other and connected thing to say about the imagination is that uh, because we aren't at the ending, but in a sense Christ has shown us what the ending is going to be, we have to keep the ending in mind. Uh, is this already not yet tension? And, um, you know, it's so crucial for discipleship. We, we may not see one another as glorious beings, but that's what we're being made into. And I, I, guess I would call it the eschatological imagination, the ability to see things that are not yet the case as already the case because they are in Christ. We have been raised in Christ. That may not be apparent to the senses, but with an eschatologically sensitive imagination, 
they can see the not yet as already. That helps us to persevere in our faith. It helps us to rejoice in tribulations. I think it's the only way we can rejoice in tribulations. We have to be able to see them as part of a bigger picture. That was Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, who serves as Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is the author of several books, including The Drama of Doctrine, a Canonical Linguistic Approach to Christian Doctrine, which was published in 2005. And he's the author of the forthcoming popularized version of that book, which is titled Faith Speaking Understanding, Performing the Drama of Doctrine, which is due out in October of 2014. And I just noticed that that book is already available for pre-order at Amazon. Isn't this fun? Well, at least I'm having fun. I hope you're having fun as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. It happens because we have generous financial donors like you. Thank you. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store. Or you can watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.